Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, just want to thank our sponsors, Creighton University and Lori Bedke. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this episode of Explore the Space podcast is Dr. Angela Rasmussen. Dr. Rasmussen is a virologist at the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health, and she studies the host response to viral infection. So you can imagine where we got started. She is a brilliant writer, and she is one of my favorite people to follow on social media. She is prolific. She is pluripotent. She's on all sorts of different platforms, sharing information in a practical, meaningful way. And she is also not someone who will back down from a challenge. She tackles misinformation and those who would spread it with a vigor that I find particularly inspiring. This was just a, a real treat of a conversation. We discuss things that I am really passionate about, communicating uncertainty with the public, dealing with failure, in this case as a scientist, specialization and how that can actually be a barrier. And we also discuss a preprint of an article that she's a co-author on around false dichotomies and COVID-19. This was a really, really rewarding conversation. I was really excited to get her on the show, and she does not disappoint. Before we get to the conversation, please do subscribe to and rate Explore the Space podcast wherever you like to download your shows. It really helps the show out. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. Definitely check out the archive of Explore the Space, www.explorethespaceshow.com. We just celebrated episode number 200. My mom was the guest, and it was fantastic. This is episode 201. It's a huge archive. Please go in and take a look around. Everything is nicely categorized. You can find the things that interest you. Please have some fun looking and please do share with your friends and your colleagues as well. You can follow me on Twitter at ETS show. Definitely love interacting with folks who are enjoying the show on social media or by email or however you want to reach out. We're in an extraordinary time and communication has never been more important. Dr. Rasmussen is, is fabulous at this and she is just at an extraordinary level on this episode. So without further ado, Dr. Angela Rasmussen. Angie, welcome to Explore the Space. I'm delighted to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I've been wrestling with where do we start because there's so many places that we could start. And it actually came to me last night when I was just sort of sitting down, looking back through your social media and just looking at everything that's going on. And the word came up, the word that I want to start with and just kind of throw your way and let you associate a little bit. Complexity. And then... I saw the article that you posted this morning, and we're going to talk about this, but complexity feels like the right place to start. You live and study and research complexity. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I I consider myself 
a systems biologist in the sense that I think about viral infection um, in terms of the global host response. So that that is, by definition, a complex system where there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of different uncertainty. I think with this pandemic, um, and I think we're going to go here and talking about the preprint that I posted. Um, one we're going to go here. That, yes, we are yeah. absolutely going to go here. <laughs> one of the things that's really been lost is that complexity and like yeah. the nuance that's necessary to sort of understand that this is not a, a categorical thing. You know, the, the pandemics are very complicated and there are a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of uncertainty and it's really hard to think about it um, in anything that is not sort of complex systems level terms because it can't really be reduced to just things are this way or they're that way, they're yes or no, or black or white, one or zero. Uh, this is not really a binary system. It's a continuous system. And it it's really unfortunate that a lot of the conversations about this pandemic have sort of been reduced or oversimplified to these binary choices. Uh, the reality is a lot more complex. So acknowledging that complexity is all around us and certainly with the COVID-19 pandemic writ large, the the parallel emotion that I think that that complexity is eliciting at a really a population level, at least in the United States, there's a couple of different ways it could have gone. But the one that I think, and I'm curious to hear what you think, because you deal with this far more out on the sharp edge than I do, is fear. I think that people are really afraid of that complexity. And instead of embracing it, trying to get better, trying to learn, trying to kind of sharpen their edge, they just want that path of least resistance as quickly as possible. I think that's that's true. And I think that the way this sort of plays out is that people will look for an answer. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they're, they're just not comfortable with the fact that right now there is no answer. And for things that I think a lot of people think are really basic questions about just the virology. So like how much virus do you need to be exposed to to become infected? That's actually, it seems like a simple question. It's a very deceptively simple question because really it should be an answer. Like you need to be exposed to, you know, 1, 10, 100, 1,000 virus particles to get infected. But the reality is a lot more complex. And it's actually a very difficult question to address um, experimentally in people because we're not going to go around infecting people with serial dilutions of viruses, <laughs> um, <laughs> especially when the virus might kill them. That's that's generally frowned upon. And ethical scientists don't do those types of experiments. So people, I think, get really frustrated that something that they see as like a really, really basic question is unknown and trying to explain like, well, it seems like a basic question and it's fundamental to understanding how the virus works, but it's not easy to address that. Um, I think is really not an acceptable answer for people. And I think a lot of that is based in fear. It's like if the scientists can't answer these basic questions, then who really knows anything about this? And maybe we should just follow the path of least resistance uh, where somebody has, you know, a guess or they misinterpret things to come up with some kind of answer. And I think that gives people some reassurances. Scientists are used to dealing with uncertainty and dealing with gaps in knowledge. And I think it's been really challenging to communicate 
like how we do that to the general public, because people want an answer now. I mean, information is power and that helps people feel better uh, that, you know, we we understand at least what we're fighting. It's not very satisfying, I think, for people. And it it's frightening to hear like we we actually don't know much about this. I am glad that you are confident enough as a scientist, as a researcher, as a member of, of our society to say, we still don't know much about this. That uncertainty, being certain about that uncertainty, I think is really important because I think it gets to something that I would overlay onto this, that even when we do know something, we, we, we can't, we can never make guarantees. We can never speak in this is a hundred percent true. And that in and of itself, I think drives people's anxiety and frustration even further and, and widens that divide as opposed to if we say this is really difficult and we don't have all the answers and we don't know much yet. It's also okay for people to say, you are talking about something that is extremely complex. I don't understand it. That is scary to me. I now have two roads I can go down. I can go down the road of slamming and burning and trashing people on social media and I'm not going to wear a mask and just being difficult. Or I can say, I'm, I'm going to try my best to learn. Why is it more difficult, do you think, as the scientist, as the educator, as the researcher, why is it more difficult to go down that latter road, that road of saying, this is super complicated, it's really scary, the stakes are high, and my level of understanding isn't great yet, but I'll keep trying to learn and get better. It feels like that's a really hard road for people to to approach. Yeah, and I think part of the reason is just sort of a fundamental misunderstanding between the public and scientists, like how how training in science works. Um, yeah. And part of this is, you know, goes all the way back to like elementary school where people, you know, if they don't do well at first in science or math, a lot of times they think it's really hard and they kind of shut it out. They do just enough. And I mean, I'm speaking from personal experience here because I never liked taking math classes. And I think a lot of that was just the discouragement that you get from getting things wrong. It, it doesn't, our educational system doesn't necessarily encourage people to learn through failure. Science, however, as I got older, and of course I had to take lots of math classes to be a scientist, you know, taught me ways to, to learn from those failures and to, to be comfortable with the idea of failing. And that's really intrinsic to the scientific method. So, I mean, the basic scientific method is you make a hypothesis based on the available evidence that you have, and then you test that hypothesis. And a lot of times that hypothesis turns out to be wrong. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that you failed. Um, it just means that you need to adjust your hypothesis and test the new one. Um, and even a failure of a hypothesis is data uh, about how, you know, your your hypothesis was in the first place. And it can guide you on how to, to change that hypothesis, then test that. Invariably, that process creates new questions that you either develop new hypotheses for and test, or you go back and revise the old one and keep testing it until you find out what's actually right. And most people don't make decisions that way. Most people don't get knowledge that way through a sort of trial and error process in which they're constantly trying to prove their own ideas wrong um, so that they can adjust them to make them correct. And I think it's really, really difficult for scientists to communicate to people that that is how we've been trained to, to address these types of biological problems. Um, I think that, you know, really this more than anything has suggested that 
both scientists and the general public need to sort of change the way they're educating themselves about this stuff. Scientists certainly need to educate themselves more about how to communicate uh, scientific data to people and how to communicate uncertainty to people. I think scientists have largely failed at that. And that's one reason why people are uncomfortable talking about science to scientists. Um, a, a lot of our fields are filled with jargon to the point where sometimes I don't understand what you know cell biologists are talking about. I still have to look things up that other biologists talk about because they're using jargon that's outside of my field of virology. So it's, it's really a challenge on our end, too, to try to be able to communicate about these uncertainties and about the problems that we use with the general public. And if the general public is accustomed to, okay, well, this has been proven with evidence and therefore it's, you know, uncontrovertible and it's set in stone, it's, quote, settled science. When most science, I mean, I don't know that there is such a thing as, quote, settled science. I think that we have a lot of scientific paradigms, many of which are based in evidence, but you always have to be open-minded that evidence may come along to change the picture or disprove a previously accepted theory. And uh, we need to be open-minded to that. Um, and I think the, a lot of the people who are in the general public who I've communicated with, who are insistent on things that have been, in my mind, pretty clearly disproven, have really made me think a lot about sort of this this interface between scientists and the public. Like, how do you communicate to people what's settled science or what's not or what we're fairly confident in or what we don't know anything about? And I think that just sort of the, the lack of ability to, to discuss this across disciplines and with the public has really made this a very challenging conversation to have uh, sort of as a society. There's only a certain number of like hyperbolic ways I can agree with someone. But what you're just saying, I mean, this is this is why this podcast exists. This is why I'm so passionate about this is that that divide is is huge. It's generational. And it's something that hasn't been tended to. And this pandemic, along with many other issues, exposes that gap. And I think it's critically important that all of us in the physical and life sciences look inward and be accountable to the fact that we, for any number of reasons, do not communicate effectively with the public on the work that we do. And I think we can also say in parallel that the way the vast majority of Americans have been educated around the life and physical sciences they've been let down by that process and they have not been given the f fundamental understandings of how this stuff actually works with the, you know, the idea of keeping people safe, promoting the public health, you know, doing things in the right way, doing things ethically. There's a, it's a huge, just a chasm that we, we really have to struggle to bridge. And in that vacuum, all of the things that you and I just hate bubble out and, and just undermine and insult and degrade and it's really, really, really difficult. Exactly. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. One of the things that, that has driven me the most crazy is that a lot of the people who are sort of stepping into that vacuum uh, to, to provide, you know, really exploiting the opportunity to provide misinformation for their own benefit, whether that be to sell something or to just develop their own brand or their own clout, you know, a lot of them have degrees. They might not be hmm, related. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There are a number of PhDs and MDs who are in this space. Um, 
And what's funny to me is when you call them out uh, as, you know, an expert, say you don't know what you're talking about. That's not how viruses work. That's not how you calculate R naught. That's not how, you know, this this system actually works. This is not correct. Then you get accused of credentialism. But I'm like, the, the reason that the people are in this space is because they're using their credentials to say that they have expertise that they don't. Right. And so it, it, it sort of widens that divide um, between people who really know what they're talking about and their ability to be trusted by the public. And that, again, is not just because of those people who stepped into that vacuum to take advantage of it. It's also on us for not effectively communicating and building that trust with the public to begin with. And so that's why it's, for me, it's always been really important to be as transparent as possible and to really spend a lot of time on this type of public communication, just because that trust has to be there in order for us to to really get uh, the public dialogue going that we need to have going. You're very, very good at it. And in terms of bridging this divide, I think you actually just mentioned two of the things that I think are critically important, trust and transparency. And I think that there, I'm just sort of thinking and doing the, you know, fun exercise as I'm listening to you and, and feeling inspired by you, I would say that one of the other ones is inspiration. And so I'll ask you in that place of looking and seeking for inspiration and knowing that if we can inspire other people to kind of build out their skill set, to get good at things they're not good at, to you know learn things that they're not familiar with, you spend your days and nights immersed in complexity. Why do you love it? Why are you drawn to it? What is it about this that has made it your life's work? Well, I became a virologist for actually a non-complex reason. It's actually pretty cliche for somebody my age. I was in college in the in the late 90s and I read The Hot Zone. Yes, totally. Yeah. And now like now that I am a virologist who does study Ebola and filoviruses, I'm like, oh, my God, that book is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. It sensationalizes and exaggerates almost everything about filovirus pathogenesis. So that's a a sort of non-complex reason. I wanted to be like a a virus cowboy or virus hunter or whatever, um, which in itself is actually a pretty harmful trope um, because (laughs) usually uh, women are are not in those ranks. And they're usually, uh, it's sort of an older model of academia that also is pretty colonialist um, in terms of just a lot of people from North America and Europe, or a lot of white men from North America A lot America of white savior Europe. complex, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Kind of parachuting into these low and middle income countries uh, where outbreaks are occurring and then leaving without really doing anything to ensure the long-term health of the communities. So I've... You know, I've appreciated complexity and that even the simple reason, like, I just think this is cool that I uh, went into virology is a fairly simple and easy to understand one. Now I've, you know, become aware that that this field that I thought was so simple and cool and adventurous and being like Indiana Jones for viruses or whatever is is actually really fraught with a lot of problems and they're complex problems that extend beyond the science they have to do with culture with socioeconomic inequality um, with the you know increasingly complex global world that we live in so not only are the viruses themselves super complex but the entire field and its relation to the world and getting back to the original sort of trust issue that we were talking about ensuring that we have that trust uh, globally 
in terms of the public and thinking about global public health is really important. So initially I was kind of inspired by, you know, this cool viruses are cool. I want, I would like to work on them. sounds like a neat, like, you know, very unique job I could have that's both scientific and, and sort of filled with adventure. And nobody told me that it's mostly writing grants, (laughs) 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 but it's, It certainly, you know, it was more inspiring when I was before I actually became uh, a virologist. But now it's still inspiring because, I mean, like with a pandemic like this, it's terrible. And I've been as frustrated as I think everybody else, regardless of what field you're in or what you do, uh, whether you're a scientist or not. The pandemic has been awful and brutal. But even, you know, with a a brand new virus, it's also been fascinating. Like, it's been really interesting to see how complicated and complex this virus is. It also really highlights the stuff that we don't know about viruses that we've known about for a long time, like SARS Classic or um, MERS, which I've been studying since 2013, um, or even influenza, which we've known about for forever. Viruses are just really, really complex themselves. The way that they interact with their hosts is even more complex. And that does um, inspire me and interest me. And it, it reminds me why I suffer through writing all those grants. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. So uh, being on the other side of the spectrum, but still part of the same work, the, the complexity and the idiosyncrasy and the unpredictable nature of how these things behave, taking care of people who have COVID, it's it's bizarre. It's 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 exciting. It's scary. It's all of those things. But man, it is a new entity. And just like the space that you're in, we are just struggling to catch up. And we see the implications of that. And, you know, the the conversations and discussions around how treatments and therapies and diagnostic testing that that this is ground that's been well traveled. And and I want to spend quite honestly, our time together on some different content. But I know you and I are in the same space that that has all been incredibly frustrating and ineffective. That being said, we also know that when we do this, we're going to deal with failure. And you've spoken with, about that a little bit too, that just by definition, when you're working through scientific method, you're going to deal with failure. I'm not good at that. You talked about not being good at math in school. You and I, I think are about the same age, just kind of hearing <laughs> when you read the hot zone. Yeah. Same thing, right? I took my math classes in high school. I wasn't very good at it. I just kind of banged through it when I was an undergrad, get them over with and, and move on to stuff that I like. What are the things now, because you found your life's work, you're going to do this for a while. What are the levers that you pull that help you move through failure? Well, it's probably a little bit different for you and me, because for me, when I fail, the stakes are a lot lower. Um, I'm not. Oh, I don't agree with you. No way. Not a chance. I totally don't agree with you. You're the one that's researching COVID-19. I I respect your perspective, but I don't agree at all. I'm I'm waiting for you to write. Well, for me, if I fail, um, that means that, you know, maybe I have to retract a paper um, Uh because I'm not I'm certainly not, you know, publishing. I don't do work with clinical subjects. So or clinical um, trial participants or anything. Yeah. So it's not like if I screw up and say, oh, this vaccine or this drug is likely to work, that that means that, you know, a clinical trial is going to fail. And certainly if I screw up, uh, at work, I can correct that if I do that in a paper. Um, that's what the peer review process is for. It's a lot harder when you're trying to treat a patient, I presume, who is who is very severely ill, and if yeah. you screw up, they might die. Um, not that not that anybody who dies from COVID is the fault of the physicians treating them. 
but I think, you know, it's just, it's different kinds of failure. And I think the grass may be always greener. <laughs> That's interesting. Where, That's fair. That's from, cause, cause I, from your perspective, like I would imagine that like probably the worst thing would be trying to tell somebody's loved ones that their, that their family member or their, you know, spouse just died of COVID versus, Oh shit. Like I have to retract this paper <laughs> or, <laughs> Oh shit. Like I, I messed up the data or I transposed the, the axes or whatever on my graph. Yeah. Um, it's still a shared experience, though. I think that it's just this idea of the work that we do, the stakes are super high. And I think it's really difficult to quantify it and to compare it because it's just the prism that we look through. When I look at the work that you do, I'll freely admit I'm a scientist and I have a hard time understanding the sharp edge stuff that you do. It's really confusing. It's really, really complex. And it it needs experts like you to do it, to translate it, and to teach us. And I think that sometimes medicine may feel the same way for other people. So I think we can kind of walk in that space together. Uh, that being said, I just think it's critically important that we recognize that across the board, the stakes probably in all of our careers haven't been higher. That's, that's absolutely true. And uh, I, I think also for, for me, like the actual scientific work I do feels in some ways like lower stakes or at least equivalent hmm. to just the amount of misinformation that's out there because that actually does kill people. Um, yeah. The hydroxychloroquine thing, for example, yeah, yeah. Um, people are still telling me over and over again, hydroxychloroquine works like you are contributing to millions of needless deaths by saying that it doesn't. And it, it's, I still haven't figured out a good way to say, no, we don't have any evidence that it works. Just because the president said that it does doesn't mean that it does. And please don't take like high amounts of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine uh, if you can get your hands on it, because literally one person did die from doing that. And I, I think that it's really hard for me to deal with sort of the failure in communicating about this, because it it has become apparent to me that just like you said, uh, the ability to sort of break down some of the scientific jargon to just help people get empowered with information about the basics of this virus and the immune system is really important. If people are, you know, doubting scientists and doctors, physicians like making their own medical decisions based on bad information, that I see as a huge failure on really all of our parts. But I, I do take that really personally because it can hurt a lot of people. And yeah. for example, with vaccines, if people are saying that vaccines, that this process is not good and that the vaccines approved will be unsafe, I don't believe that they will so long as these trials are allowed to continue to their endpoint. But I, I think that if enough people refuse the vaccine, that's incredibly harmful to public health. And that would, again, be a failure to sort of establish that public trust and that line of communication that that's really needed to get people on board. I mean, when the polio vaccines were developed, people were lined up around the block with their kids to get to get them a polio shot and then later a polio sugar cube. Now, I don't think we're going to see that at all. We're going to see some people lining up around the block and we're probably going to see some people across the street picketing. And that that's really, I think, a huge failure on just sort of public health in general's part to convince people that we all need to be on the same page with regards to this stuff. It does feel like we're going to be picking up the pieces for 
such a long time and at the same time still trying to understand how things got so shattered. The, the people that enter the physical and life sciences, the training is rigorous. The screening is, is rigorous. There's so much that goes into it. And somehow we just completely lost track of the part that we, we have to make sure that the populations that we're working hard to serve and to, to grow are in, are aligned with us and understand what we're doing. And I just think for such a long time that wasn't happening. And now here we are. Yeah. And I think, you know, getting back to the original topic of complexity, I think it's because in all of our respective fields and subfields, things have actually become less complex. Hmm. I mean, you could argue that I'm specialized virologist and that I study host pathogen interactions. And even though I know plenty about like what viruses themselves do, I study the host response. So, so I'm not necessarily looking at, you know, viral entry. There are people who study that and like know everything about everything that there is to know basically about like what happens when a virus interacts with its cellular receptor, like what conformational changes are undergone, like how that virus gets in and escapes from the endosome and starts replicating. And that's not even my field. I mean, I can talk about that competently, but um, it's, you know, it's not where I focus my research. So even within our own fields, we've become so specialized that in some ways our understanding of the bigger picture becomes less complex. And I, I know the same is true with physicians, despite the number of ophthalmologists who apparently are also infectious disease epidemiologists, uh, at least according to them, you know, there are, there are a number of different med- medical specialties where, you know, a psychiatrist is not going to perform surgery on you. And not to say that they should. I mean, we all should have our specialized areas of expertise, but we shouldn't do that at the expense of not understanding the larger picture, whether that be, you know, medical health in general. And I know that that people do get a general medical education, just like I got a general cell biology, biochemistry, et cetera, education in graduate school. But I think by specializing the way that we have, we've almost lost the ability to talk uh, to people in other disciplines, um, or for example, even for scientists like me to talk to physicians like you without using a lot of jargon. And so that, that sort of necessarily strips some of these discussions across disciplines of their complexity. And it makes it really challenging then when you try to get everybody together and go talk to the public. Uh, Everybody's speaking like their own language. It's kind of like a medical or scientific tower of Babel. And it's really hard to uh, get a coherent message across. And so people kind of, you know, fall into the path of least resistance and believe the thing that's easiest for them to understand. I'm filing that under one of my favorite takes of the year. And I also love that you used Tower of Babel in that context because it could have been Tower of Babel, B-A-B-E-L, you know, the proper noun. It also could have been yeah. B-A-B-B-L-E, <laughs> the Tower of Babel, is we're just babbling to each other. The reason exactly. that I love that, yeah, the reason that I love that take though, it's actually come up on this podcast before is the idea of specialization versus being a generalist. Um, I had Bob Walker on the show a few months ago and he spoke about that idea as well. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that his content on Twitter and on social media around COVID is so well received. And David Epstein, who wrote the wonderful book range that really dove specifically into this topic of being a generalist in a hyper-specialized society. I like to think of myself as a generalist. I'm a hospitalist. I'm, I specialize in the care of the hospitalized adult, but in doing so, I take care of everything. And so I I really like that. And I think that this show, I try to create a place where we can talk about anything 
I can't talk about it at the same level of expertise as the people who come on, but it informs our conversation. And I think the fact that someone who is as hyper-specialized as you are and so good at it in the same time can still have that situational awareness to see this is great, but it can also be a real barrier. It's just, I, I, that might actually be one of the critical pieces to unlocking this, that we can get ourselves so soaked in our own jargon and data and research that we lose track of what everyone else is doing and the ability to even talk to them. A, you're right. I mean, you and I could have two totally, we could talk to each other and not understand what the other person is saying. And we could start right now just because of all of the jargon. Oh, totally. and, yeah. <laughs> but I think that that is, that's so, that's so critically important. And I, I just love it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I struggle with it, you know, because when I, I like to think of myself as a generalist too, and I have very sort of wide ranging interests. Yes. Um, but at the same time, if somebody, so if somebody asked me a basic question, like what, what is R not, what is the virus's reproduction number? You know, I can give a pretty basic spiel on how that's calculated. I mean, I know some fundamental epidemiology, but if somebody says, how does this epidemiological model work? How, how are they forecasting this? That's when I turn to my friends who are actually epidemiological modelers and tag them in and say, can you yeah. please explain this to this person as well as me? Yes. <laughs> because, yes. because I don't know what I'm talking about and I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out on a limb and try to interpret something that I don't understand for the public yeah. and potentially make that misunderstanding worse. So that community, that sense of community, that sense of open conversation, of welcoming, of sharing, of democratizing information, we need to make that more open to people that aren't in the sciences so that when someone approaches us with a question, they aren't made to feel like they felt in fifth grade when they got fractions wrong. They're made to still feel welcome at the table. Hey, no worries. We're going to figure this out together. And I think that there is an opportunity to kind of springboard there because it's the same response, right? Just like you said at the top of the show. And I think that was super smart because it took me back to like when I couldn't figure out geometry and how it made me feel. If we put people back in that place, they're going to resist. They're going to hate it and they're going to respond in a defensive way. But if we can restructure how we frame it, like, look, this is not geometry. This is not fractions. This is not physics. You know, the way you learned it, this is something that's a lot more welcoming. That might be a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Because if, if somebody asked and I still me don't understand them, geometry. Yeah, me neither. Um, <laughs> if, if somebody asked me to, unless it's like Sokotoa, I don't know if you had that, like, Oh, and I, I actually remember the Pythagorean theorem because I remember it being a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I thought that was like the end all be all concept in math. And then you know, somebody was like, oh, no, that's just the beginning. Like, wait till you hear about integrals. Like, <laughs> I was oh, like, no. oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you ask me to solve a quadratic equation right now, I have another acronym for that, too, FOIL. But um, so I guess I could probably do that. But I had to reteach myself a lot of that math, like when I took the GREs. Um, just because they were going to test you on it and your ability to do it longhand, which yeah. I mean, nobody does math longhand when they're an adult or very few people anyways do like that would turn me off. Like I'm not going to have a conversation that's like in equations. Uh, that's going to, that's going to make me crazy. Um, like explain to me like what this means to me. Yeah. And that's yeah. kind of the approach I try to take when explaining virology to other people. 
Because nobody wants to hear about endosomal acidification and primine and conformational changes in proteins and blah, 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 or phosphorylation cascades. Nobody wants to hear about that stuff. They, they want to know how it applies like to their lives, like how it applies to their loved one who might be sick, what it means, like what it means for them. And so I try to keep it in, in sort of that context to just make it more inclusive. Because, like, the last thing I want to do is listen to a bunch of virologists talking at each other. Like, I do that every day. <laughs> <laughs> that's the mindset, though. That's the thing. I think that that's the key word, that when we are asked the question, how do we make our answer feel inclusive? As opposed to how do we make our answer feel like I'm just way smarter than you and you're never going to understand and it's geometry all over again. How do we make the answer feel inclusive, acknowledging that the subject matter is super scary. It might involve them or their family member, as you said. How do we make our responses feel inclusive? And I think you know, we're always looking for the tools from, from, you know, apex smart people like yourself, when they, we get to talk with you, what are the things, what are the, that's, I I think that's the kernel right there of real genius is just taking that minute when someone asks you a question, how do I make my answer feel inclusive so that they will not feel like I just threw cold water on them, but I brought them a coffee and we can sit and talk about this like adults. Yeah, I mean, it's really important to show some humility. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think I met, so I've gone like to fancy schools my whole life. My PhD is from Columbia. I went to Smith before that. Um, Every every fancy school that I've been to, you know, there are plenty of people who were clueless and like didn't necessarily, (laughs) didn't necessarily indicate, at least to me, like why they were there, like, or, you know, that, that were not as as hardworking or you know maybe they didn't like talk in in like big flowery words or use a ton of jargon but that doesn't mean that they didn't deserve to be there and some of the people who do talk in big flowery jargon that doesn't necessarily mean that they deserve to be there um every place whether it's an ivy league school or you know your your local like coffee shop um, is full of people who are of varying degrees of education, but I think they're all capable of understanding this really fundamental stuff. Like, what what does this mean for me? What does this mean in my life? And the way to to get through to like that broad range of people from different experiences and different backgrounds is to speak to them clearly without condescending to them. And that's really tricky because oftentimes in academia, like the person who's the most condescending is thought of as the smartest person in the room. And that's often not the case in my experience. In fact, it's almost never the case. So just, you know, because you have a fancy degree and use a lot of incomprehensible jargon doesn't mean that you're going to come off to people who have a different background than you as smarter it means that you're probably going to come off as more of an asshole and you're probably going to come off as condescending and you're not going to get people to listen to you. So I try to um, have some humility, like whenever I'm trying to, to talk to a general audience about really complex scientific topics, because it's not that it's beyond people's comprehension. I just need to talk about it in terms that are accessible to as many people as possible. This is, this is the, this is the stuff. I mean, this is the, that's just awesome. And it does sort of bring us to 
what I saw right before we started interviewing, which was this new preprint that you are an author on that does a couple of things right out of the gate that I really liked. And it speaks to what you're doing. Number one, it's available to a broad audience. You don't have to have a fancy subscription. You don't have to pay for it. It's, it's available open source. So it takes away that barrier, which I think is something we can certainly get better at. It's got a title that's super clear COVID 19 and false dichotomies time to change the black or white messaging about health economy, SARS CoV 2 transmission and masks. We can all kind of understand where we stand with that, understand what we're looking for. It's such a great document. I know we're kind of getting running short on time. I could talk to you for hours. We're going to have links to this in the show notes, and I would really encourage people to spend some time reading over this. It It's a snapshot of where we are in August, you know, September, summer of 2020, early fall of 2020. It's a brilliant document. I'm so glad that you wrote it. I'm so glad that you're doing this stuff and I'm so glad that you're still able to reflect these lessons in the midst of being in such high stakes work. As people hear you speak, they're obviously going to want a lot more. How do people find you on social media? How do they follow the work that you're doing? So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at at Angie underscore Rasmussen on Twitter. And that's usually where I do most of this. I've just found that Twitter is actually the best social media medium, I guess, for um, communicating with a very broad audience and for people to interact with me directly. I, I will warn you that I have a very low tolerance for people who like just get on to start fights or to troll. So if you want to do that, I'll probably block you right away. But um, otherwise, that's where I post pretty much everything, whether it's a take on sort of a new paper or a link to that preprint that you just mentioned, which is currently under review and hopefully will be published um, in an open access journal coming up. But Really, one of the reasons we decided to write that, I was approached by the first author, Kevin Escandon, who um, is physician and professor in Columbia. And uh, he and several, he recruited several other colleagues, Isaac Bogosh, who is uh, an ID physician in Toronto, and Eleanor Murray, who is an epidemiologist at Boston University, um, and Karina Escandon, who's also a physician got all of us together to kind of write about a problem that all of us had observed, which is that a lot of these really complex topics where there's a lot of uncertainty, such as masks, the correct answer, like, do they work or do they not? And that's how like a lot of the public discussion was being framed. And it's not really that simple. Masks do work, but they don't work perfectly. So it's it's more of a spectrum of risk reduction that masks provide and not an absolute, either they work completely, perfectly, or they don't work at all. And this this whole conversation was kind of frustrating us, as well as the the conversation that's still going on, frankly, about aerosol transmission and how common is it? Is it the only mode of transmission? Are there others? Like, what about droplets? What about fomites or contaminated surfaces? Um, all of these questions that really don't have just two answers. They're not binary outcomes. We're being discussed largely as really categorical binary things. And so we decided to like, let's write an article about it and let's kind of talk about how this discussion really does need to be more nuanced and come 
complex, especially with regard to communicating about this stuff to the public, because it has very real implications for whether or not people are going to adopt these necessary risk reduction measures. That was kind of our motivation for writing it. And that really is kind of my central philosophy for how I communicate with stuff. I know that I can translate, for example, today there was a report of a case of reinfection in Hong Kong, and it was reported by press release. So there's not a complete data set to look at. And I just knew that that was going to get picked up potentially and be like, reinfection is possible. Everybody's going to get reinfected. Vaccines won't work. You know, we don't get immune to this. And that's not what that paper says at all, or what I assume it says, because I haven't seen the figures um, since it was a press release. I thought that it was really important for me to get on there and say, hey, like this is there's a lot of questions open about this. We need to think about that before we start basically, you know, saying bring out your dead and freaking out that we're all going to get reinfected with COVID. And that's kind of like my guiding principle is just to try to help people understand that these things are usually not a yes or no, black or white uh, kind of question, that there really is a lot of gray area. And by helping people understand that, hopefully I can sort of elevate the level of the public discussion about these things. I saw that thread this morning. I thought it was fantastic. I agree with you that science by press release is not effective. It's easy. It's provocative, but it's not effective. And I thought that your analysis of it and your discussion of where the gaps were was was fantastic. The 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 article, the preprint is is so great. The final remarks I thought were really wonderful and obviously people will get to it. There's just one part that I want to pull out and then we can we can get you out of here. Science, policy and risk of infection lie on a spectrum of gray shades. They are not binary or should not be regarded as such. That's just such a critical message. It's such a good document. You are doing amazing work on so many levels. This was a wonderful opportunity to speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. And this, you know, this podcast is called Explore the Space. And I feel like that's really what you're doing. Like this was a really great opportunity to have sort of a wide ranging discussion about these wide ranging uh, issues that are facing all of us. So I'm really grateful to to have this chance to talk to you about it. I'm glad you liked it because I'm going to invite you back. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to come back. Awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. My thanks once again to Dr. Rasmussen for coming on the show. Definitely find her on Twitter at Angie underscore Rasmussen. You will not regret it. Thanks again to the sponsors of this episode, Lori Bedke and Creighton University. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. And thanks to you so much for listening. Really appreciate it. As I always like to say, I never take this for granted. It's a privilege to have you as my audience, and I'm thrilled to have you here, and we will continue to crank out great content. We always kind of end with our reminder of the things that we can be doing to help ourselves and help those around us. And I'm just going to add a little something to it. Remember to wear your masks, maintain physical distancing, remember to wash your hands, and please do remember to register to vote. We are at the height of election season. Election day is November 3rd, 2020. You can go to www.vote.org. It is a nonpartisan website. You can check whether you're eligible to register. You can register right there. You can register absentee. It only takes a couple of minutes. Please do not miss that opportunity, and please be sure to spread the word to your friends and family and colleagues. Don't take it for granted that anyone else is registered. Connect with people and ensure that everyone who is able to vote is able to vote. Thanks again for everything. We will see you soon. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com. Thank you.